Thank you for downloading this podcast from Bromley Town Church. We pray this message will refresh and encourage you. For further information about Bromley Town Church, you can go to our website, www.bromleytownchurch.com. Good morning to you. Welcome to Bromley Town Church. It's good to see you in the house of God. We want you to be encouraged. We want you to be strengthened in God. Can I just say, if during my preach this morning, you start to feel chilly, I will not be offended if you put your coat on. It's been ridiculously cold outside. I believe that the weather is changing, so we're going to be on to a new, fresh phase of weather. Uh, this week, it's going to get hot relatively to what it has been. So, uh, but if this morning you want to put your coat on, that's fine. Uh, we want people to stay warm, and we're going to serve tea and coffee afterwards as well. Let's just pray. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour and Lord, we come to you. And Father, we are asking that you come and meet with us. Lord, we've sought to open our hearts to you in our worship. We pray, Holy Spirit, you will come and minister to our lives. We need you. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring wisdom, truth, and understanding to our hearts that we may walk in the ways of Jesus Christ and be his disciples here on the earth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I would say we're in the middle of a series, but it's, sort of a, it's more of a talk through a number of subjects. And the subject that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks has been that of darkness. Now, the phrase darkness might seem a bit strange, but what we've really been talking about, if you like, is a, a phrase, using the phrase darkness, but this is a coverall in the understanding of all of the workings of Satan, all of the workings of the devil. It, and it's for us to be able to understand and come to a comprehension of who we are fighting against and the type of warfare that he is bringing against us, the effect that he can have upon our lives. Because unless we know what is coming against us, we don't know how to stand up and to fight against it. This is not a case of us seeking to glorify our enemy, but it is a case of us seeking to understand our enemy so that we may be able to fight more effectively against him and to bring down the forces of darkness. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world, is what the scriptures declare. And therefore, we are more than overcomers through Jesus Christ. As we have been singing this morning, and if you didn't get the idea of singing that song, we overcome through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the blood of Jesus that enables us to be more than conquerors. So we are conquerors, but who are we conquering? Who are we fighting against? How do we fight against this darkness that comes upon us? So when we use the phrase darkness, we're looking at every aspect, every understanding of what can be thrown against the people of God and come against them to bring them down, to reduce them to nothing, but that which we have to learn to stand up and fight against. That is the darkness. Sin is darkness. And you see, sin not only brings separation from God, but it also invokes his wrath. God gets angry against sin. And sin entraps a people into darkness. It is one of the ways the enemy uses to bring darkness over our lives. In Psalm 143, it says this, The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in darkness like those long dead. 
And in Proverbs 4.19 it says, But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. You see, scriptures declare to us what it is like. There is like a darkness that is over us as a people. Isaiah 60 verse 2 says, See, darkness covers the earth. And thick darkness is over the people. But then it goes on to say, But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. And even in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he declared this to the people around him, uh, that there was a people living in darkness, and upon them a great light has shone. Well, that was John the Baptist, actually, wasn't he? He was saying that. Because of Adam's sin, Satan has been given access to the earth. He has established systems, territories, ruling structures over the people of the earth. And his aim is to kill, to steal, and to destroy the people that God has created. We are in a battle. We are at war. And yet really we just think that life is carrying on day after day. And perhaps we lose the fact that we are at war in the midst of that. Satan seeks to lead people into sin so that the wrath of God might come against them. That is why you undergo temptation. That is why there are pressures around you. Because you have an enemy who is against you, who is trying to prevent you from moving on. And not just us, but the whole people of the world are, the, are being held in captivity. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of the kingdom of God. You see, that is what he has done. Just think of this. Look at the example of the children of Israel, when they were going out of Egypt and they came, well, they were going into, getting ready to go into the promised land, you got that time when they had been given the law at, the, at Sinai and all the law had been revealed to them, the glory of God, there was fire on the mountain, a real uh, spectacle, if you want to use a, a, a phrase, of, the, of God's presence coming upon them. And after that, there's the situation of the golden calf. It seems that as Moses goes up the mountain to get everything written on the tablets of stone, so suddenly the children of Israel, having seen all of these miracles to come out of Egypt, having seen the glory of God, and then they're falling into sin with the golden calf. And you say, well, what's all that about? You see, Satan wants to bring people into sin to invoke what? To invoke the wrath of God against them. So that God starts to be opposed to them. Think of this, even when the children of Israel were, were trying to go into the promised land and Moses sent out the, the, the 12 spies, so they went out to spy out the land. Joshua and Caleb, of course, came back with that report that was saying like, whoa, yeah, the guys are big and there's some tough cities, but we can do it. But 10 of them were saying like, the guys are big, there's big cities, I don't think we can do it. This is not good, this is terrifying. And they fell into sin. And after that, what happened? It was God met with Moses, and God was saying to Moses, right, I'm going to wipe these people out. I'm going to start afresh with you. I'm fed up with this bunch. Satan causes people to sin, to invoke the wrath of God, especially against peoples. If you can do it against a nation, because a nation is singing, that is great news, because he's trying to invoke the wrath of God against nations and against people groups so that God is against them and the darkness builds against them. We have an enemy who is opposed to us. I hope you have got that understanding in your mind. 
In Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 3, it says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, objects of wrath. You see, Paul was saying to the Christians, listen, this is what we were all. We were all objects of God's wrath when we were outside of the provision of his salvation. We've looked over the last couple of weeks at the fact that in Isaiah 25, verse 7, it speaks of the fact that over the nations, there is a shroud, a shroud that enfolds all people, a sheet that covers all nations. There is like a blanket of darkness around the people who live upon the earth. And the forces of darkness are pressing in against us. Now, I paint a dark picture because we need to understand why we need to arise. If we do not understand, we will not have any impetus to say we have to see change. Otherwise we just say, like, oh dear, that's what it's like. Well, that's a shame. Well, Jesus has overcome and we're just sort of like carrying. That isn't what he's called us to be. He has called us to be more than conquerors upon this earth. He has called us as Christians, as the church, to go out there and to proclaim to people that if through the power of the name of Jesus we can tear down the strongholds and the darkness that is opposed to us and we can see people's lives being set free from the captivity of darkness. If there isn't a church that is displaying the truth and the light of God, then the people of the world do not have hope to look towards. One of the problems that we have today in our nation, to a degree, it's the fact that the church is rather wishy-washy and asleep. People look at the church, they are looking for answers. People are looking for God. They want to know there is a God who cares for them, who loves them and will help them. But they want to see examples. They want to see lifestyles of people being transformed. That's why we have a responsibility to be awake. That's why we have a responsibility to stand up and to declare the praise of him who has called us out of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. We have a responsibility to do that. Now, I just want to recap on something I spoke about last week because I just think it's important just to lay this foundation as well. That was the issue of worship. I talked a little bit last week about worship and what worship, what it is. Not just the fact that we sing songs. This is an aspect of our worship, although Rick also clearly underlined in our giving, our, our giving to God, that is also an act of worship, but our serving, the way that we live our lives, these are also acts of worship. But what is worship? Primarily, man was made to worship God, and worship is this. It's when man opens his spirit up to the Spirit of God. And as man worships, as he opens his heart, as he softens himself before God, his spirit becomes open. And as your spirit becomes open, you start to be able to have fellowship with God's Holy Spirit. And as we have that fellowship, that intimacy with God's Spirit, so God can come and commune 
with his people. Now, this is exactly what he was designed to do in the first place. In the first place, we see Adam and God. And we see that God is able to commune with Adam. And when Adam comes to name all the animals of the earth, he's not doing it out of his resources. He's doing it out of the resources of God that are coming into him. He has the knowledge of God because he has connection with God. That's what man is designed to be. So as man worships and he's created to worship, as he opens himself up to God, so his heart starts to lose its hardness but to gain softness in the presence of God. And as we continue deeper into worship, you find that God starts to speak because he is revealing himself to his people. He wants to make known his laws, his decrees, his wisdom, his understanding, his way of doing things. He wants to impart into the heart of man so that man is not going out not knowing what to do, but man is going out energized, strengthened, understanding the ways of God because he's communed with God. As man worships, he opens himself up to God. Man was created for worship. So as he worships, he opens his spirit up. But here's a thing. As man opens his spirit up and worships things, he is worshipping or he's opening his spirit up to the spirits that are behind those things because we don't, we, well, we know that man does not only worship God. He worships idols. He worships spiritual forces. They don't seem to be like that. They don't seem to be like the, the, the Buddha figure or something that we might imagine as an idol that we could get hold of, but he worships things. He can worship a TV program. He can worship food. He can worship sex. He can worship money. He can worship his job. He can worship things. What? Because he is devoting himself to it. And as he comes to that place of worship where he continually opens his spirit up to it, he is opening his heart up to those demonic spirits that are behind it. Let me give you an example. The example I've chosen is that of pornography. If a man or a woman goes to the internet or however connection you might be able to have to pornography and starts to view those pictures, then we would understand that that person is opening themselves up to something that is not what God wanted. That's not the primary thing that God wants. He doesn't want us to behave like that. He wants man and women to uh, dwell together in a marriage relationship. When man starts to go towards pornography, he's looking at other women. He's opening his mind up to spirits of lust and adultery. He is opening himself up as he goes again and again and again to that computer to draw more of those pictures. He is entering into worship of that idol. And as he is worshipping that and gazing at those pictures, that wasn't his thought that he was worshipping. He was just getting some pleasure and some feeling good type of thing. But he's opening his spirit up because there's worship happening. He's opening his spirit up, and as he opens his spirit up, so the spirit of lust that is behind that starts to influence his life. Now, let's just ask a question. Do we know that if somebody was to continually look at pornographic pictures, would it have any impact upon his life? Yes. It starts to affect his life. It starts to affect his relationships. It starts to distort them and skew them. And so such a person and we read about them sometimes in the press, they commit horrible crimes. 
And we find out later that they had a, an interest in very deviant type of pornography or violent films. You see, these things are real. Man is a spirit. In this body is a spirit. My body is failing, and sometimes desperately failing. But in there is a spirit, and my spirit is what communes with the Spirit of God. You have a spirit. Supposing our person was a Christian that was going to look at that pornographic picture. Well, surely that can't happen. Wake up. Wake up. So this is a Christian now who's going to his TV screen looking at those pornographic pictures. On Sunday, he's worshipping the living God, but on other days, in the quietness of his home, he's worshipping the gods of lust and adultery. Is that having an effect upon him? Because he's a Christian, God has made a way for the forgiveness of his sins. But that worship is drawing the presence of darkness to him. And the presence of darkness starts to corrupt his heart. You see, we can go on speaking about, oh, we're under grace, we're under grace, God forgives, God does forgive, but we're not dealing with the issue of the forgiveness of sins, we're dealing with the issue of overcoming the powers of darkness that are arrayed against us, that are seeking to take us into captivity. And if we do not understand this, we're just wandering around aimlessly. You see, we have been forgiven as we come to Christ for our sins but we're talking about the ability to stand and to stand against the forces of darkness and now to show that we have power and authority against them. But unless we stand, unless we take our stand, unless we make a change, those powers of darkness can reduce us into people that have no power, no authority, and are corrupted because we're worshipping in all sorts of different places. No man can serve two masters. That's what the scriptures tell us. Either he will love the one and hate the other, or he will cleave to the one and despise the other. No one can serve two masters. Let's just ask a question. Now, in mind, I'm not putting the issue that everybody here has got some sin of pornography. Although if you have, no doubt you're more awake this morning because I mentioned it. But other things that we can have in our lives that we're giving ourselves to, are we giving ourselves to things, to the worship of things that is producing the effect of darkness in our lives, that's inviting it? So we might be in here this morning wanting the, the presence of God, but as we go out, we're embracing the presence of darkness and we're drawing it towards us. We need to know that we can overcome through Jesus Christ. We need to know that he is for us. Listen, in Matthew 6 it says this, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, or that is if you are putting things in front of your eyes that are feeding you with bad things, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Do not be deceived. Listen to the Word of God and what the Word of God is telling us. Darkness has a power over our lives. Darkness is a power and it is a threat to Christians and those that are unsaved. 
Therefore, we need to be awake. This is why Paul, in his teaching in Romans, or lots of the teaching that Paul brings and the other apostles, but Paul says this, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. You see, our Christian that was looking at the pornography, he hadn't got hold of that scripture or he didn't know how to apply that to his life. You just think, well, I'm, I, I'm trying to count myself dead. Yeah, but it's not working. And if it's not working, who has the greater power? Are we saying that someone has more power than God? No. But it does mean that we're being defeated, that we're being attacked, that we're coming under powers of darkness that we are not able at this time to resist. Wake up. We need to wake up in our lives and stop allowing the enemy to push us around. We need to know that we are more than conquerors and there is a way for us to fight back. It's interesting that um, Johnny earlier on read this scripture. Allow me just to blow my nose this morning. A little cool. He read this scripture to us and I've got this down as well. Ephesians 5 verses 8 to 14. Perhaps you can, we can even turn to it. For it says here, For we were once darkness... We were once darkness. He's talking to Christians. We were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live. Live as children of light. You see that? See, once we were darkness, once we were totally encased with this darkness that was against us, but now we've been saved, we become light. We become light, but there's an instruction that he gives straight away. You become light, live. Live as children of God. Live as children of light, for the, light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Just interesting to see what verse 15 starts off with. Be very careful then, how you live. The way that we live is important. The way that we're working out our Christian life is important. It's not just that we come to Sundays. Sunday is just one day. You're a Christian 24-7, 365 days a year. You're always there, always alert, always awake to God. See, our guy, our Christian guy, that had this problem with sitting in front of his uh, computer and looking up pornographic pictures, he had lost sight of the fact that he needed to change his lifestyle. Or maybe he was in the point of view of knowing that he needed to change, but was finding he did not have the power to be able to change. Something is wrong with his knowledge of Christianity. Because otherwise we're saying that Christ can't set us free. Listen, he is far above every power, every authority, every name that can be named. He is above. And in Christ, 
we have been seated with him in that place. Now, if we are far above every power, every authority, what in the name do these things have a right to have authority over us? Right? Okay. We need him to help us. Perhaps we need to stop trying to do things in our strength. Perhaps we need to wake up and recognize something is wrong and I need to change. I need to change. We can live with darkness all around us, seeking to trip us up and to take us captive. But as Christians, we are not darkness, we are light. Light is to shine in the darkness, to overcome the darkness. So we have come now this morning looking at this weight that is against us, that is opposed to us on a daily basis, for we are called to fight the good fight. We need to recognize that we are at war. The rulers and the authorities, the powers of this dark world, they are arrayed against us but we have been called to fight, knowing that we have been called to fight. What strategy, what help can God give to us that we may be more than conquerors? So we're now coming to a point now of saying, okay, at least I hope we're coming to the point of saying, okay, I recognize there's a problem that is against us. Now let's leave the problem there for one moment. Let's come back and now look at what is God giving us as solutions be able to overcome. And the solution that we're going to look at this morning, or look at partly this morning, is the strategy of altars. The strategy that God gives us of building altars of prayer. Now, I know for those of you who have been in the church here before, you're probably a little bit more aware of the phrase of altar. For those of you that might be new here this morning, you're thinking altars. This sounds a bit weird. This sounds a bit strange. What is an altar? An altar is usually a place that we see at the, perhaps at the, at the front of an Anglican church. We'd understand that's an altar with a cross on it where communion is taken. But we'd also understand, actually, if we dig a little bit deeper, an altar is a place of sacrifice. It's a place where God actually meets with his people. Well, let's just look a little bit further. If you have a Bible with you, perhaps turn to Genesis 6, verse 5. We touched on this last week, but I'm just going to recap on this story. Genesis 6, verses 5 to 8. And we're going back to the time of Noah. Um, now, this is the time of Noah, but we're just getting a picture of what God thought about the world system at that time and what people were living in. It says this, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now we know that the favor that Noah had was that he was able to build the ark, he was able to take the animals into the ark, and he was able to be saved. And so the flood destroyed what? The flood destroyed every other living person. It was only Noah and his family that were saved. 
and the animals that have been taken into the ark. They were the only ones that were saved from this flood. Everybody else was destroyed. And if we go over to Genesis 8, this is now, we've been through, the, the floodwaters have come, everything has perished, the floodwaters are now subsiding, and he's found that there's the, there's the bird that's been and found the olive leaf, and they knew that everything was coming back to life. And so it's now that the ark has landed and Noah's coming out. Uh, Genesis 8, verse uh, 15 to 17. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. And then if we go down to verse 20, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. So it's interesting, before the flood, we read of God saying that he saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. After the flood, we also read every inclination, this is a talking of man, every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. So before the flood and after the flood, God's opinion of what was going on in man was the same. Was the same. But here, in Genesis 8, after the flood, we're reading of God in verse 21 saying, never again. Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all the living creatures as I have done. What was it that caused this different outcome? Because we've got the same situation. The same situation. Previously, God says, every inclination of man's heart is evil. Here comes the flood. Now he's declaring the same. Every inclination of his heart is still evil from childhood but he's saying never again, never again. What we see is the difference is the altar that Noah built. As he came out of the ark, he built an altar, and there is something about the building of that altar that has moved the heart of God. There's something that has changed the heart of God. There is something about the power of building altars that changes the heart of God. Now, we need to get hold of that. It's not only, of course, in this situation that we see, but having this understanding, there is something about altars. Altars, building an altar, building a place where there is a sacrifice made to God, it draws the presence of God to us. And as the presence of God comes, so his presence, his authority, his light starts to expel the darkness that is around us. That is what happens when altars are built. If we go on from here to the story of Abraham, in Genesis 12, we've got Abraham setting out. He's been told to leave his country, his people, his father's household, and go to the land, God says, where I will show you. He's going to make him into a great nation. And as we go on in Genesis 12, down to Genesis 12, verse 5, it says that Abraham, he took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, 
and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abraham traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills, uh, hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord. Now with Abraham, we see here is a guy who's been given a promise from God. I'm going to give you this land. This land is going to be yours. This is where your inhabitants can have their possession. They're going to own this land. And what Abraham does is he builds an altar and then he moves on from that place. He goes to Bethel and then he builds another altar. And if you follow the life of Abraham through in Genesis, you will see these are not the only two altars he builds. There are other places where he gets there and he builds an altar or he comes back to a place where there was an altar. What do altars do? We know that there's the gathering of stones. We know that there's a sacrifice fire and all of those things. But what are we noticing? What are we declaring that altars do? Altars draw the presence of God. They draw the presence of God. What happens when the presence of God comes? What happens to the darkness around? As the light comes, what happens to the darkness? The darkness gets overcome. It gets its expelled. That's what happens with altars. So here we see Abraham, again, using that knowledge of drawing the presence of God to enable him to start to be able to take possession of the land. Can I see a notice here? It says, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Were the Canaanites good people? Good Christian people? Good moral people? What, what do we know? No, they weren't. They were evil people. They were doing the things that God didn't want. They were, having, they were building altars to foreign gods. They were worshipping foreign gods. They were doing the things that God did not want. There was evil in the land where Abraham had gone to. Do we see evil in our land around us? Do we notice that? Are we living amongst an evil people? Yes, we are. We know that's all around us. What therefore do we need to be doing to be able to possess the land for God? But according to this system, we need to be building altars to draw the presence of God. What if we don't build those altars? What will happen? Very little. The Canaanites, or if you like, the sinners of Bromley, will remain unchanged. Were these people evil? Let's just ask this question again. Am I sure the people living in the land where Abraham was were evil? What about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Their evil reached to such a height that God says, I've had enough. I'm coming down to judge. I'm getting Lot out and his family, and boy, they only just got out. But they got them out. Remember the intercession that Abraham had over, that, over those cities? Oh God, if you find 50 people, and he was trying to reduce it, reduce it, reduce the number of the righteous to be found there so that God would save the city. If I find five he couldn't even find that number. But he got out a lot and his family. And even Lot's wife turned back and became a pillar of salt. Was there evil in the land? Yes. Horrendous evil. But what was the strategy that God said? 
building altars. Now, one of the places we saw that Abraham built an altar was at Bethel. And again, if we're going through the story in the Bible, we read a lot about Bethel. Abraham, his son Isaac, and then Isaac had a son, Jacob. Jacob, again, had the argument with his brother. If you remember, he nicked his brother's blessing, and there was a bit of disturbance, a bit of disturbance. There was a lot of disturbance in the household, such that Esau was aiming to kill Jacob. So Jacob thought, best I get out of here. His mum says to him, go back to my, brother, my brother's house and get yourself a wife. In other words, get out of here and keep yourself safe and start a new life. So he did. And on his travels away, going back now to his uncle's house to go and find himself a wife and to get away from his brother, he's tired, he lays down, he comes to a place, he finds a stone, he puts his head on the stone, and as he sleeps, he sees a vision. And the vision is of heaven and of a stairway to heaven. A ladder, Jacob's ladder, Jacob's stairway, what people call it or what people sing about in different songs. There was a stairway going up to heaven with angels of God ascending and descending. And when he wakes up, he's a bit amazed. It says here in Genesis 28, he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land you are lying on. When Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What was this place? This was the place where Abraham had built an altar. What do altars do? They draw the presence of God. They start to pierce the covering of darkness that is over the land. Was the land dark in those days? Yes, it was dark. There was sin and pollution of all that sin was creating the powers of darkness, was starting to have authority over the nation of Canaan. But Abraham started to break through with God. As he prayed and as he sought God, there was a breaking. He had created literally open heavens over that place. Open heavens that... When his ancestor comes and lies down, he has a dream. What does he see? Open heavens. He sees this place is nowhere, nothing else but a gateway to heaven. I'm seeing the angels of God coming from heaven, coming to the earth, and going from the earth back up to heaven. This is an opening. Altars open the way to heaven. They open the way to heaven. Do we need altars? established in Bromley, that we might see the heavens opened, the gateway to heaven being opened, so that people may be rescued from the cloud of darkness that is over them? Yes, we do. We need to take notice of this strategy. An altar is like a gateway into the spiritual realm. It opens up heavens. When altars are established, something is happening in the spiritual realm and it can open the heavens. You know, in Kings, 1 Kings, we see again an issue of altars. This is where Elijah is going before the people. You know the story there that uh, the people have got involved in Baal worship. 
They're worshipping Yahweh, but they're also worshipping Baal. This is syncretism that has come upon the Israelites. And it even gets to a point where, where well, we know the full story, where uh, Elijah is wanting to, to see a change in that. And he comes before the people and he says, well, whom are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve God? So he issues this ultimatum statement to them, and the people are just silent. They're so bound up in darkness, they don't know what to do. They don't know which way to go. So there's a contest that's made. The, the prophets of Baal are, are supposed to bring a sacrifice and to call upon God, and Elijah's going to do the same. The God who answers by fire, let him be God. And we know what happens. Prophets of Baal laid out their uh, sacrifice. They danced around it. They were cutting themselves. They were doing everything to attract the demonic presence at their altar that Elijah had overcome in the heavens. Nothing happened. So Elijah establishes altar. And it says this in 1 Kings 18. It says, Then Elijah called to the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which was in ruins. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and licked up all the water in the trench. See, Elijah repaired the altar of the Lord. So often we're just thinking, oh, he just built this little shrine place. Because we're looking at it pictorially, we're looking at it physically, we're not looking at what it was doing and what it was representing spiritually and what we ourselves need to be involved in. Let me ask you a question. Is the altar, that place of drawing the presence of God in your life, is it in a good state or is it in disrepair? Because that's what we need to address. If it's in disrepair, we need to repair the altar of the Lord. Because we have not been called to be nobodies. We have been called to bring the kingdom of light in. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. If the light gets put under a covering, how is anybody going to be able to see? If the salt loses its saltiness, what use is that? And see, we can get to a point where, although we might be called the light, we're becoming ineffective. And we cannot afford to be ineffective because we have much work for God to do. Just finally as an example, again, the life of Daniel gives another example of this idea of an altar being established. But I'm taking it, he takes it slightly on, as it were. Daniel, as we know, was serving King Darius and uh, his work colleagues got very jealous of him. They were fed up with this guy really shining for Jesus. They were fed up with it. He was always getting things right. He always knew what to do. Everything seemed to work out eventually all right for this guy. How can we overcome? This guy is making us annoyed. We're fed up with him. And so behind his back, they made the king establish a law that if anyone prayed to any god 
other than the king for 30 days, he would be packed off to the lion's den. The king, of course, put his seal and made it law. And when it was law, it couldn't be revoked. When it became known to Daniel of what the new law was, what did he do? Daniel learned that the decree had been published. He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. That is his altar. If an altar is a place where we are drawing the presence of God, an altar is a place of prayer. It is a place where we come. It is a time. It is a set place. It is a place that we are coming to that we recognize the purpose of us coming there is to commune with God. The purpose of us coming there is to worship, is to open our spirits up to him, the king of glory. Not to some other demonic force, but we're coming to God himself purposefully to say to him, we need you to come to us. Come and meet with us. Come and open the heavens over this place. Come and open the heavens open over my life. Come and make the gateway to God open to me. I am coming to my altar. I am coming and bringing my life as a sacrifice. I'm sacrificing my time. I'm sacrificing my energy. I am sacrificing myself on this altar that I may draw the fire of God to me. That's what Daniel was doing. Three times a day he came to that altar. It was important for him. It was a place of connection for him. It was the place of his power. It was the place of his strength. It was the place where he got his energy. And now it was supposed to be cut off. But what was he going to do? What was he going to do? Come under the threat of going to the lion's den? No, I'm coming to the altar of the living God because that is the place of power. That is the place where darkness gets pushed back. That is the place where I can open the heavens. That is the place of authority. That is the place of breaking the powers that are coming against me. I will not leave my altar. So Daniel opens the window and he prays. For him, he knows that adversity is coming. But God is mighty. Look at his previous friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. When they were confronted about going into the fiery furnace, they said, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he isn't going to do it this time, we're not going to bow down to you. Daniel had the same thing. Look, I don't, God is able I'm coming to my altar. So as he comes to the altar, he's making himself public. People see that he is praying and suddenly he's being sent to the lion's den. The king knows that this is the good man. This is the righteous man. This is the trustworthy man. But he has no alternative but to place him into the lion's den. The king doesn't sleep. But the next morning, when it is early, at first light, the king goes out there and he knocks on top of the lion's den and he says, Daniel, has your God been able to save you? O king, live forever, comes the voice. My God has shut the mouths of the lions. The power of God has come to break the dark and deliver Daniel. This is the power and the authority that is for believers today. This is not some dream. This is not something you're reading about in a book of some hero in the faith that is only for him. God is not a respecter of persons. God wants to see his kingdom 
being established in his people and his people not being overcome by the darkness but being able to stand up and fight against the thing is are his people working out his strategy or have they let their altars go into disrepair you see we cannot say well we know we need to pray needing isn't doing and I don't want to talk about this is what you must do because then, oh, but we need to see why we are doing things. If we do not establish places of prayer where we are coming before God, if we do not establish those places of drawing God's presence by reading his word, letting his presence come to us, then we are opening ourselves up to the powers of darkness that can come against us. We could have looked again at the life of Peter as well. And there is a man we see with the praying church around him. We could have looked at the life of David. I was reading it through 2 Samuel yesterday, and you've got this picture right at the end of 2 Samuel where, there is a, uh, where Satan has come to tempt David, and he has a census of all the people, and then God's wrath comes against him. Classic working of Satan, doing something to invoke the wrath of God against the nation. And there's a plague that comes. Uh, David pleads for mercy and a plague comes to the nation. But then the prophet Gad comes to David and says, build an altar to the Lord. And as the altar is built, so the presence of God comes again. And he starts to bring God's healing to the nation. Altars are places of meeting the presence of God. Altars are places that attract the presence of God. An altar is a gateway to the spiritual realm. An altar is a time and a place where we commune with God, a place of fellowshipping with him. An altar is a place of sacrifice. An altar is a place of worship. Folks, we need to establish here in our lives, every one of us, a personal altar where we are coming and we're drawing the presence of God. If we're not drawing his presence, we are leaving ourselves open to every working of the enemy that can be arrayed against us. If we're not using the word of God as we saw last week and using our weapons of our warfare against the powers of darkness, we can be taken out, we can be overcome. We need him. We need as individuals to start to make sure that we have established an altar in our lives. An altar is a place where we are coming to worship, coming to pray, coming to read the Word of God, primarily to draw His presence to our lives. We need Him. He is the one who has power and authority. He is the one who can commune with us. And as we come to those altars and open ourselves up to Him, He starts to commune with us starts to give us instructions, starts to enable us to overcome that which was arrayed against us, starts to enable us to be more than conquerors in him. We know to do it for ourselves. We need to do it for our families. Do you notice whether in your family there are people who are under the influence of the powers of darkness, who are gripped, who are locked, who are blinded. How are we 
to be able to set them free. How are we to take the land? By building altars. If we build altars and we start to pray for our families, we draw the presence of God. As the presence of God comes, He does what nobody else can do. He can change us. He can change them. He can bring light into our circumstance. He can give us words. He can give us transformation. He can transform us to such an extent that our family members start to say, hey, what is going on with you? God can move. I'm seeing it in our own family situation. We've been praying for our family for a number of weeks. And just little things, little signs, you see, that can only have been God who's done that. That's only God. I haven't seen the fullness of what I'm looking for. But when you start to see, this is God. It's not just a, wow, that's a, you know, a, a, an upturn. How did that come about? This is God that is at work. As we trust in him, he will do us. We do have another choice, that is to do nothing. But if we do nothing, the heavens are going to remain shut. The darkness is going to grip us and we're going to remain in the same position that we were before. Let us just pray. Perhaps the band can come up here. Father, we are asking for mercy. Lord, we're asking that you forgive us for our waywardness, but Lord, we're praying for revelation from your word to transform us. Lord, help us to see the need that we have to draw your presence to our lives. Help us to see, oh God, the relentlessness of the enemy that is against us, the battle that is arrayed against us. But Lord, to know the power that is in you. Father, will you help us to understand that we may give ourselves to rebuilding your altars. Father, so that we can see your presence come, not only into our own lives, but into our families, and even more so, Lord, into our communities and into our nation. That, Lord, that your name may be high and lifted up and that your glory may be seen over us. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or you're after more information about Bromley Town Church, do visit our website, www.bromleytownchurch.com.